Hello, this is the Made Musings podcast, the podcast that focuses on everyday issues, illnesses, and disabilities that affect everyday people. Find us anywhere you listen to your podcast and on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Made Musings. Please subscribe. Today, my guest is Chris Parker. Chris is a user experience designer and a lecturer, so I'll leave him to give us a full introduction and welcome to my show, Chris. Let's get this ball rolling. (laughs) Hi, so I'm a lecturer in user experience design at Loughborough University. Now, if I say design, most people think it's really beautiful drawings or it's making things look pretty. When I think about design, it's about making people feel good. So when you use an app, you get an experience. You might not think about it. You might not reflect on it, but you're going to be feeling good. Now, you probably use Facebook every morning as soon as you wake up. And it's because you enjoy it. And when you use uh, a sat-nav, maybe use Waze, because you enjoy it. And there's a lot of thoughts that goes into making these things really great. So that's design. Um, UX design, user experience is about understanding how people feel and the problems they face in everyday life, which maybe they've just accepted of that's just how life is. You know, that's just how we need to have a bad time in life and we're going to get over it. So understand that then you go, right, here's an opportunity to make something better. You have ideas, you make prototypes, give them to people, get feedback, and you work towards these services or apps or things around that really make people smile. So that's my field. And it's a really exciting field because it's very new. I started out in, uh, when was it? 2003, went to university. It didn't even exist as a field, so going from undergraduate through to doing a PhD and now lecturing it, it's been quite a good journey. And as you know, from the topic of today's podcast, I am dyslexic. Oh, wow. You are a lecturer and you are dyslexic. Let's first of all find out what dyslexia means and what it is to you. That's a great question. So dyslexia is very common. Maybe a third of people might have it, but you'll find that a lot of people have various traits. So it's more of a scale. Um, Most people know it as a reading or writing problem. So at school, you probably would have known somebody with dyslexia and they couldn't read or write very well. And that's true. That's the basic view of it, but it really is a lot more than that. So... I'm going to give you a quick list of some of the very common people, things that people have problems with in the life. So with reading, yeah, following written instructions, following technical manuals, quickly understanding written work like reports, or reading something and remembering what you've read. When it comes to writing, you might write a B as a D or a D as a B, or those other bits just reversed. Um you know, you might write a word like which, but rather than spelling it W-H-I-C-H, you go W-I-H-C-H. 
general spelling, general grammar, knowing where to put punctuation, be able to write by hand, be able to fill out forms correctly, expressing yourself clearly in writing, taking notes or writing a report, taking minutes of anything that's happening. When you're copying numbers down, you might make mistakes like put the wrong numbers in the wrong order or miss numbers out. Um, if you're putting numbers into a column or table, you might put everything in the wrong cell. Doing mental maths like um, algebra or even learning at times tables. When it comes to speaking, be able to follow a conversation and what someone's saying and really understand it and join in is often difficult. Um, contributing to a meeting and working with people, jumping in, or even just presenting thoughts clearly. So be able to get what's in your mind out through your mouth. Um, with memory, it's following instructions that someone's given you. you know, someone says, go here, turn left, turn right. Be able to remember telephone numbers, be able to remember messages, remember importance, or even just concentrating for a long period. See, this list really goes on. I'm getting this from this incredible book called um, Dyslexia in the Workplace, which I'll talk about more later on. With actually controlling your body, maybe inputting data into a computer or calculator, so hitting those keys correctly. When you see a complex visual uh, in um, like a chart or a graph or a complex table, better understand that. When being in a large building, be able to know where you're going or all these things. Um, be able to sequence files or forms, so filing items away correctly or retrieving files. If you've got a dictionary, be able to look things up clearly. If you're organizing work, scheduling, planning, meeting deadlines, keeping a piece of paper in order, or just working at an efficient level. That's a really long list, and not all people with dyslexia are going to have all of those. You'll find that people who don't have dyslexia are going to do some of those. They're just human traits. But the more of these you have, the more likely you are to be dyslexic. So why does this happen? What causes people to have some or all of these problems? It's a really interesting question and more research needs to be done on its causes because a lot of the time the practice research and occupational therapy focuses on how to help people who have problems because understanding why it occurs doesn't really help. We know that when you put a regular person such as yourself into a MRI brain scanner and give them a piece of you know, newspaper to read you are going to get this pattern of which part of the brains are lighting up so the left side of the brain is going to be really active in processing these words quite often you're going to just see the word and the shape that the letters form will just instantly kick that this word means um, hello or whatever it is give the same text to a dyslexic person then those parts of the brain that should be fire firing up blank. Malcolm Gladwell wrote this amazing book, David and Goliath, and he does a whole section on dyslexia. He describes it as, it's like looking at a city in a power cut. It's just not over there. Over on the right side of the brain, the areas that you're normally going to process and use when looking at images or drawing, they are on fire. So when the brain is developing as uh, an embryo is in the womb, the cells that go on to become brain cells 
don't quite arrive at the right location and that you find these cells lining the pathways of the brain when they shouldn't really be there. So you can think of it as just part of the brain is not built correctly and the other part of the brain is making up for it. Oh, so, wow. yeah, it's it does go very deep. Now, this is something I find really interesting as a dyslexic person because I was diagnosed at, I must have been seven or eight. I was, I was very young. And I remember in classes at school, all my friends were doing their weekly spelling lists that you, you know, teacher gives you a list of words and next week you have know, test on them. And these are words like rat and cat and bat, really simple words. I couldn't spell rat, you know, and I couldn't put the alphabet in order. Did your teacher at the at that time notice there was something wrong with you? Yeah, um, they noticed that I was a normal kid, apart from I couldn't do these very basic tasks. So I was sent for a assessment. So you meet a educational psychologist and they run a series of tests. And there's things like putting, you got a series of blocks with pictures on and they give you a picture, got to make that picture out of the blocks. On that test, as a small kid, I was off the scale fast. Like they couldn't measure how fast I was. But like with the list of things I gave you before, if you gave me as a kid a list of words and asked you to remember it and repeat it, I was very poor at that. Being able to remember numbers, sequence numbers, all these kind of bits. And you get these, and what you're looking for is a pattern of strengths and weaknesses, which is like the dyslexia fingerprint. So I was very lucky to be diagnosed early and given very good support all the way through school. Lots of people don't have that support and they are just labelled as someone who's a bit stupid. Oh, um, wow. That's, um, that's, such a, that's such a wrong way to go about it because some of the symptoms and characteristics you've listed, they are similar to people who have ADD, that's attention deficit disorder. Mm. And it's... Very interesting to note that you are working in as a lecturer mm. and you, you are a user experience <laughs> designer and you need the skills. You need your skills to be able to write, I guess. You need to be able to read and you need to be able to program efficiently. Yeah, and without so. with your dyslexia, <laughs> how have you manage to get on with life in spite of your dyslexia? Yeah, that's, um, it's a really interesting question um, about doing well. There's um, polls of entrepreneurs, you know, people done amazing business and about a third of them are dyslexic. Now, um, I said before about third population dyslexic, that's a mistake, I take that one back. Um, it's a smaller number, but a third of entrepreneurs are dyslexic. And that is strange. So is it that you've got a whole lot of people that have done really well despite their dyslexia? Or is it that there's something about dyslexia which is actually useful? 
So yeah, that's what I. That's something yeah. that I was uh, going to ask uh, later on. Because I feel, I mean, if people are, I mean, you said maybe third of businessmen are dyslexic and they are successful. How do they manage to be successful as mm. businessmen, as entrepreneurs, as uh, business leaders? Yeah, so I'll go back to starting with why I chose design and kind of pedal forward through PhD and things. So at school, I was amazing at design, to be modest. I had, I think my um, A-level in design, which is the high school you know, final grade, I got 97.2, I think, percent. It was almost perfect score. So I was good. At the same time, I was failing chemistry and failing physics. I had rejected English as subject because that's writing and reading. And at that age, why would I do anything to do with reading and writing? The idea of reading for fun, that that was crazy. You know, what, why would anyone do that? Because that was my world. It, it was, I had a really negative relationship with that. So I chose design for an undergraduate because I really enjoyed it. I was very good at it. And I thought it wouldn't involve much reading and writing. To some degree, I was right. Um, if you study at undergraduate level, you would write a few reports, but it doesn't rely on you having these beautiful, fluid ways of writing. And then I went off, off into a degree, sorry, post-degree. I went off as a designer and I designed lights for shop windows, like flagship Selfridges in London, those kind of high-level environments. That was fun. I got the opportunity to do a PhD and I didn't really know what a PhD was, but I knew it sounded fun. It's something that I never thought I'd be able to do. So I applied. Somehow I got through the interview. I think my um, interviewers were on some kind of drugs. <laughs> so I arrived there. And this is when the first sort of walls came up. So until then, I'd managed to get through using, just getting the gist of things and I don't really know why I was, I was good at undergrad or anything. There's a whole reason for that. But when you get to PhD level, you've got to read these high-level academic journals, which reads like they were written by an 18th century professor. I know. Um, <laughs> so you've got like, one paper could be 5,000, 6,000, 8,000 words. So you need to very, focus. You need to have that attention to detail yeah. to be able to get something out of those papers. Exactly. And so there was me about 23, 24. And it would take me a whole day to read one of these papers. Now, if you know anything about doing PhDs, you could read up to 2000 papers during a PhD. Uh, so straight away, you've got this mountain of work. I remember sitting in my lounge for about two weeks every day, reading one book that I had to read for the subject. And you kind of realise really early on that this is not working and I can't get the information this way. At the same time, I'm having to write as a professional writer. I didn't realise at the time, but when you do a PhD or work as a lecturer, you are a professional writer. And professional writers need to write clearly need to write shortly and 
be persuasive. It's, it's a real skill. And to do that, you need to have very clearly in your mind what you're trying to say, structure arguments and present it. I couldn't do any of that because I had run away from English as subject as fast as I could as a kid. And yeah, now I'm in this world when I'm doing these things. On top of that, you're expected to go to conferences and present. Presenting is a skill where, think about that list I talked about earlier about organising, clear thoughts, having discussions. This was really challenging. So that's when you hit the wall. So how have I done well? So where I've got to now, I don't know what success is. I know there's a lot more that I want to achieve. But I'm a lecturer at university, which means that I'm giving lectures, I'm writing journal papers, and I've written journal papers in some of my field's leading um, journals. I've got a podcast, I've got a YouTube channel I present on, I've taught internationally, I've got book chapters out there, and I'm a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy. So that's kind of where I've got to, how do I bridge that gap? There's no simple answer to what I've done apart from you get this phenomenon which is when you're confronted with a negative experience you if you find a way of coping that helps you work differently so with reading I realized that I didn't have to read this whole journal paper I didn't have to read these 8,000 words I could read the abstract at the start which is a 150 word summary of what the whole thing's about. And that's going to tell you if it's worth reading or not. So you just saved loads of time. You don't have to read the whole thing. Then you can jump to the end of the paper and read the conclusion, which is maybe 500 words. And that conclusion pretty much tells you, you know, when, when you write a science paper or um, an article, you've interviewed 20 people about their experience in whatever they're doing. They're going to say, right, everyone reading, here's the points that you need to go and take away and do your thing with. Now, these points should change what you're working on. So it's like, if I just read that, then I don't need to read the main body to get a good feel what the paper is. And you just shrunk this massive task down to a really small one. So that's the kind of thing you can work on. So is that what helped you? Is that what yeah. you did specifically? That's one of the things did. And of, of course, you do go forward and read full papers and you do learn to get faster at reading them. So I'm not trying to say that I don't read anything. Um, no, of course not. Just, you can't be a lecturer. You can't be good at what you do without you get, being, I mean, without doing the work. Yeah. And you also, you, know, you look at your peers and go, well, it's annoying that they can just do things. So they can just sit there, have a think, get their minds in order and write something really great. And that's really impressive to me. That's something I can't do. So I worked out that I find it difficult to just do that and have that clarity of thought. So you work out that if you write down a structure of how you should be thinking before you do it, and if you can like read guides on how to write persuasively and you research all this writing skills and organization skills around what you're doing that gives you a framework and then you can say right i'm going to take the first piece so when i'm writing a journal paper um, about some research i've done i'm publishing 
you know, what's the first paragraph the introduction talk about? Well, the first paragraph talks about who you're writing to, what's their problem, why it's important to them. Okay, right, I, I can do that. So you've broken things down into small tasks. And you start developing these mechanisms to just structure your thinking before you've done it, to write down and look at it. And when you do that, the really good thing is that you become really good at it. Because when people give you feedback and say, oh, you're not being very clear. Well, okay, why am I not being clear? Oh, you didn't, didn't structure it this way. You didn't tell us about that. Okay, right. Yeah, okay, got it. I'll go back to my original structure written out and I'm going to update that. I can modify that. And the next time I come to write something, I've got this improved structure. And it really is having this crutch, which becomes a superpower. And then there's other things where what I, as well as having very muddled thinking just off the go, reading processing, as we said in that list at the start, is really hard. So I went through some very difficult times when I was starting out writing my journal papers about my research, where you can tell from my voice I'm English, you know, it's no one's going to think I'm anything else. But the feedback would come from the reviewer saying, you need to get a native English speaker to proofread your work because in places it's unreadable. How does that make you feel when you have that kind of feedback? Oh, you feel destroyed. Yeah. You, know, you really feel destroyed. Like you've put months of work into this. You put your heart and soul. You've tried yes. so hard. And they're basically thinking that you are from another country. Now, being from another country, of course, is totally fine and awesome. But when they judged your English ability as it's like somebody who learned it when they were older. Yeah, because you are you should be a native English speaker, and yeah. somebody is telling you to get a native English speaker to prove read your work. Yeah, that's like doubting your ability. Yeah, and I didn't at first. I didn't understand it. I just thought, well, that reviewer is a bit stupid. Maybe they have bad English reading. Maybe because journals are international, you get amazing professors from all over the world. Um, reviewing, critiquing your work as it should be. And I thought, well, maybe they just can't speak very well. Maybe they didn't realize that what I've done is really good. And this kept happening. And so you pause and go, right, this is, this is not working, is it? This is, you know, I, and to give you an idea, if listening, if you're a lecturer in a good university, you've got to be good at teaching. Okay. We, we, we teach, but 40% of our job is research you've got to publish one very good paper every year, minimum, and apply for research and other grants. So getting published is a really important part of your job. Yeah, so I realised that you know, this isn't working. There's something here. It turns out I can't read my own spelling mistakes. And someone pointed out that if I use the computer's read loud function, so I sit there, and the accessibility features will read back to me what I've written. Then you go, oh my God, that's terrible. I can hear it. But when I'm reading it, I don't even see it. It's just kind of, it's, it reads as fluent as the best author you can think of until I hear it. So having these, be able to listen to it, pause, 
play, correct what I've written, and then go again. That is a game changer in just producing work, which is okay. All right. Oh, thank you so much for that explanation. And I really appreciate you being open with this because uh, it's not a field. I mean, dyslexia is not something I'm really familiar with. But mm. now that you've explained it, you've broken it into pieces and it feels like it, I, I'm relating to it more like AD, ADHD in some ways. It's like you can't just focus. You can't, you have, you have, I mean, you, you have so many skills, but you find it so difficult to put those skills to use mm. so, as a way. So one thing about, um, so about not knowing about dyslexia is, yeah, it's really common people go, oh, yeah, it's reading and writing. And it's okay because we've got spell checkers, so you're fine. And that's a very common and understandable idea, but it's also not very helpful um, and that people don't realise it's all these things around. And this goes out throughout society where if you're dyslexic, you're more likely to go into a juvenile correction facilities you're more likely to fail school because you're playing up or violent because kids in school who can't do these things and haven't got the support to help them do them would rather be the class clown than be the stupid kid. So it does cause problems there. And people don't know how to work around it, don't know really how to support it. So like in, in my line of work, the expectation is that you do the job can help you overcome your issues, but we can't make it easier for you. And that's really common. People don't know how to support people with dyslexia. And if you're teaching, how do you support a student with dyslexia? There is a positive side to it though. So I started out by saying that around a third of entrepreneurs, uh, really successful people are dyslexic and they will have these problems. One of the things dyslexia does is it forces you to confront problems in ways that other people don't. And it forces you to find a way around something that actually, once you've got that skill, that's really useful. It also forces you to confront failure at quite emotional level quite often. So in the future, when you're faced with failure or the option of failure, it doesn't phase you as much. And you're also used to people marking your, what you've done badly. Like I was saying, I've got terrible reviews from journal papers from how I've written. Um, so you care a little bit less about people saying bad things about what you've done. You're more likely to just go, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. That is itself a skill to have, be able to throw yourself into something without the fear of failure and learn from it. So in my own um, experience, now my, fa uh, my father was in the Air Force, so I went to boarding school, not because we we're kind of rich or anything, but because they, you know, military kids go into boarding school whilst parents move around. And with all these kind of problems with dyslexia, uh, as a teenager, I was on my own doing homework. And I had, as it turns out, an ex-army commando in charge of us in the boarding house. So if we were to try and skip out of being in our room to do homework for those two hours every night, 
he would come down as like a ton of bricks. As you can imagine, ex-army guy is quite scary at times. So you're away from home, you're on your own, and you've got this homework. So I had to develop ways of being self-reliant and overcome dyslexia issues or work with them without someone helping me. And that's probably one of the best skills because failure wasn't an option. And that's really helped with being able to work well independently. Being unable to express myself in writing in the way I'd like to, in the way that others do, or maybe being unable to express myself in lectures as clearly as I would like has meant that I started using YouTube as a way of teaching. I can create these videos and I can put them online. I can create audio. I can create structures. I can put resources online. I can create toolkits and processes and maps and put them online for the students. All these alternative ways of teaching because I find that works with the way that my mind works. And what you find is that when you put that online and put that as a package for education, in addition to the traditional lecture, students really learn well with it and they respond very strongly to it. So my style of teaching and the way which I engage with students, I reckon there's a lot of ways it can be improved. So I'm not going to be on here going that I'm this great guru. We can always improve, but it's something which has really worked and can take students who are scared of data analysis, for example, and think they could never do it. And within a few weeks, they are producing statistical reports and deep analysis better than many consultants. So those coping mechanisms you learn, the skills, the not really caring if it fails, the not really caring if no one else is doing this, I'm just going to go and do it and give it a go. That has been a real benefit. So you could say that in these ways, dyslexia is a plus, even when it is the root of a lot of emotional um, problems. All right. So um, you say dyslexia is a plus and it's a root for the problems that you've had. But as a kid, how were you supported with your dyslexia? And as a lecturer, how are you supported? And also, how do you support students with dyslexia? So as a kid, I was lucky to have dyslexia lessons. Once a week, you go and meet a specially trained teacher and they're going to give you um, exercises in trying to build you up where you're not doing so well. Now, that's the kind of thing where if you can't recognise the alphabet, for example, as I couldn't, they would give you wooden blocks, letters on, and you have to arrange them as fast as you can in the order to you know, get the alphabet there. So using wooden blocks, it's tactile something. You know, you're looking at it, you're feeling it. It's using a different part of the brain than you normally would by writing because that doesn't really work so well. Um, that part of the brain is a bit deficient. So you learn the alphabet that way. And to this day, if I want to know where something is in alphabet, you know, I've got PhD and everything and I'm still going A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. <laughs> And I'm counting on my fingers when I'm going through. I do that as well. Yeah. Sometimes, you know. <laughs> um, so it's that. Um, reading. I remember there was this fantastic set of books called Fuzz Buzz. So anyone in the 30s who's dyslexic might know these, where they break words down into phonetics. 
uh, silly stories about jumping in bits because because when you're reading a dyslexic, you're often breaking down words into phonetics and reading phonetics in the word instead of just reading the word. So you're concentrating really hard. So building up that. Uh, on the maths side, uh, mental maths, when I was doing GCSEs, which is the sort of 16-year-old's exam for school, you had half of the maths grade without a calculator. With the calculator, I could do everything. I was, I was in the top maths group. Without a calculator, I was almost couldn't do Realized, anything. yeah. Mm. yeah. And part of that is the dyslexia link. So I went to specialist groups called Kumon, where it's this Japanese way of learning. You're going to start with very basic maths, like five minus three, which is two. And you're going to have loads of these super basic mental sums. And you'll do half an hour a day of just relentless, boring, simple sums. And the next week, if you've done everything well, you get the next level up, which is a little bit harder, but they're still very basic. And you're just drilling into your mind how to deal with numbers and how to deal with all these um, kind of basic equations. And that helped me get through the math side of things. At the same time, I never learned my times tables. You know, I, if you ask me like what 12 times seven is, I can work it out on a piece of paper. I can mentally. Yeah. Mentally. I, so like I learned the two times table as a sequence and I can go two, four, six, eight, ten, um, (laughs) and all that, but twos, fives, elevens are easy and tens are easy. I know the sequence, but I couldn't do any of the other ones. I never could. And I still can't. At the same time, I've got no science papers out there doing pretty good statistical analysis of large data sets. So in some ways I'm completely inept at numbers and in other ways I'm pretty great within my own context. So yeah, those, those lessons at school, given the extra support were so important. So if anyone's got kids who are dyslexic, there is a lot of sport out there and it does help. As a kid, I thought it didn't. Uh, I remember hating going through these classes because I was a thick kid. You know, to me, it was a mark of being stupid that I'm going to these things. You know, everyone else is going off doing French and I was going off to learn how to spell basic words that everyone else could just do and do all the things that everyone could do because I just wasn't very good. And obviously as a sort of teenager, everyone's got a rubbish teenage life. You know, everyone's having a terrible time because you're a teenager. But I kind of, it, it's a big brand setting you aside. So I completely understand how anyone can be depressed with that. Let's fast forward into now, what I do now. So I've given some of the other things that I do as techniques to do well with reading and writing. I study how to write almost like a hobby. So books like um, Struck on White's Elements of Style, it's a fantastic book about how to use an apostrophe. Now, and I'm constantly going back to this book about how to use commas, apostrophes, or structure things. Uh, super basic work. Or read a book called Writing Science, which talks about how to how, how to write science work. So 
it's realizing that I don't know and going out and finding the support. My computer is my godsend. When I'm writing, I use Grammarly and I have Grammarly Premium, which is very good. It's not perfect, but it does pick up a lot of the craziness that I'll be writing. I will use the audio part of the computer as well to play out what I'm writing. And that is great. And the best part of that is it's free. And Grammarly has a free plugin as well. So anyone who's listening who struggles with this and can't afford premium, which is totally legit, use the free version. It does help a lot. The other thing that I use, which is fantastic, is software called Scrivener. Now, Scrivener is a bit like Microsoft Word, but Microsoft Word gives you one blank page. You can add headings, you can break it up, and that's good, but it's one long page. Scrivener breaks everything down into sections. So you can say, well, I want to have one chunk as one section of something I'm writing and another chunk as the next section. So it could be chapter one of book, chapter two of book. Or if you want, you can have one section of Scrivener is one paragraph. On the page where you got doing the writing, just the right, there's a, a bar where you can say, right, what is this thing I'm writing about? About If it's an introduction, what's the introduction about? What do I need to cover? What are the targets of this introduction? Then below that, you've got your notes. So you can write notes about what you're trying to achieve, what's good, what's bad, so that you can really forget all the noise going around head, all the confusion, and just zoom in on this one thing. So when I'm writing my papers, I do it paragraph by paragraph because I can't keep in my mind and process all this information as a section. It has to be down to these small paragraphs. And then it starts to work well. I use screen recording software called Camtasia. But if you're on a Mac, QuickTime is free and that works well. And that's when I'm giving feedback to students about work or I'm talking to colleagues about how to do something or giving critique on design, anything. If I just turn my microphone on, turn my screen on, got my camera on, I can talk to the person. And when I do that, it's a lot more effective and fluid than anything written. So those are some things I do. And then also just being mindful that I'm not aware of all the problems I have. Because in my mind, I'm 100% non-dyslexic. Because I don't know what it's like to not be dyslexic. So everything I do is normal. I know it's not. And there's some things I think that everyone experiences and they don't. So when things don't go well, such as if you're dyslexic, because you're using so much more mental power to read, you get tired really fast when reading. So when you're hitting that, those kind of walls, like you're really tired and fatigued, and you can't think straight, going, right, I need to learn from this. I need to find something which works well for me, such as I've got my guitars in the corner of my office here. So <laughs> when I'm marking, I'm marking student work, and it's really important, it's like master's level essays, I'll do like half an hour of reading, or maybe three or four 25-minute sessions of reading and marking and writing feedback. Then I go and do like 10 minutes, just blasting out Black Sabbath or something, just playing guitar. And that clears your mind. You can go back and you can start to focus really well with more breaks than other people would normally have. 
Thank you for listening. Please download and share with your friends and family and on social media platforms. We are available on Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, IAT Radio, Listening Note, Podchaser, Good Pods, Radio Public, Stitcher, Deezer, Pocket Cast, Himalaya, and anywhere you listen to your podcast. Please leave a review, comment, or feedback on our social media platforms on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and also on our website www.podbean forward slash midmusings.com Thank you very much.